Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. As we've studied the life of Nehemiah, one of the things we've discovered is the first thing about Nehemiah's life was he was a man of prayer. You know, it's the only thing the disciples ever asked Jesus to teach them how to do. The disciples never said, teach us how to raise the dead. They never said, teach us how to heal lepers. They never said, teach us how to walk on water. As they looked at the life of Jesus Christ in the miraculous time in which he lived, the one thing that they knew they needed more than anything else was they needed to know how to talk to the Father. And if there's ever anything that we need to learn as believers, it's we need to learn how to talk to God. We need to learn how to call on Abba, Father. Nehemiah understood the pivotal priority of prayer. And out of that prayer environment, a passion was birthed. A passion to rebuild a city. A passion to help his people. A passion to do something significant with his life. From that, we come to today. And that is, Nehemiah knew that with prayer and with a passion, you have to have a plan. There has to be something put together. You see, if you want to do things you've never done, you've got to make some commitments you've never made before. And if we're going to have mountain-moving faith, then you and I better pray, and we better believe God, but it wouldn't hurt us to carry a pick because God is going to do things for you that cannot be done, but God is not going to do for you what you can do. When Jesus came to the tomb of Lazarus, he said, roll away the stone. Here's what Jesus was saying. I'm not going to move that rock for you. You can move that rock yourself. But I'll do what you can't do. I'll raise Lazarus. You see, God will be your resurrection, but he's not going to be your wrecking crew. He figures he's equipped you to do that. And when you look at the life of Nehemiah, you see a man with a plan. I remember that in the old A-team shows, you remember when George Preferred always used to say, I love it when a plan comes together. Nehemiah was one of those kind of guys. I mean, he just loved it when a plan would come together. Here was a man with a plan. Now, I know there's an element in Christendom that says, well, you know, if you just trust God enough, you don't have to be organized. There's a word for that. It's called baloney. There are three reasons why you need to plan. Number one, God plans. Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11, three times he uses the word plans, for I know the plans I have for you. God's got a plan for you. Plans to prosper you and not harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. God plans. Before you are ever born, before your mom and dad ever thought about you, God knew you. And God has a plan for your life and for the days of your life, and we are to know to number our days. That means we got a plan because God's given us a certain amount of time in which to do what he's called us to do. God plans. God had a plan for you. Number two, God commands us to plan. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 26, the good news says, Plan carefully what you do, and all your ways will be established. Anybody here doubt that Noah had a plan when he built the ark? He knew how many cubits it was supposed to be. 
He knew what he was supposed to do. He was supposed to take the animals on two by two. I am going to ask the Lord why he had two gnats and two mosquitoes. That's one question I'm going to ask when I get to heaven. But, I mean, Noah had a plan. Moses had a plan for the Exodus. When Moses built the tabernacle, there was a plan, a design on how it should be done. He got it directly from God. When Solomon built the temple, there was a plan that God wanted the temple built a certain way by a certain design for a certain reason. The Great Commission is God's plan for reaching the world. God is not a God of chaos and confusion. God is a God of order. And God has called us and commanded us to plan. In fact, if you read Proverbs, you'll find there about wisdom and planning are used there. In fact, the word work is used 500 times in the Scripture. It may mean that the answer to your prayer is simply getting out of bed and going to work. You know, God wants you to trust Him, but God wants you to do your part too. Faith without works is what? Dead. God commands us to plan. Number three, planning is a matter of stewardship. If you're going to redeem the time, as Ephesians 5 tells us, and if you're going to live according to 1 Corinthians 14, 40, everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way, then you understand that organization is not a substitute for the leading of the Holy Spirit. It's simply a method that God can use with us, in us, and through us to get the work accomplished. Why do we have a Sunday school in a church? Because it's an organization by which God can use us to teach the Word of God and to touch people's lives. Why don't we just, just show up and everybody kind of get in whatever room they want to? Because all of you can't fit in the AV room. Somebody has to be in a certain room, there has to be certain chairs, there has to be an organization. Organization and planning is a part of being a good steward for what God wants to do. You see, the presence of faith does not mean the absence of organization. Read the note, uh, the quote by Chuck Swindoll. The most disillusioned people I know are those in the Lord's work who are paying the price of not thinking through their plans. Now, here's... Here's a law of leadership. Leaders do their homework. You see, one of the biggest tasks that I have as a pastor is thinking through decisions beyond the moment. How does this affect us six months, a year, three years, five years down the road? You see, you don't think in isolation if you think about the total picture. You don't think about just how does it affect one ministry or how does it affect one small group of people. You have to think about the total overall picture, and a leader has to do their homework. They have to think things through. They have to imagine what's going on. And a lot of times, if you own a business or if you are a manager or if you and your family, you know that a lot of the problems that come up in your family are because you didn't take time to think some things through. You didn't plan ahead enough to get some things accomplished. Now look at verse 7 of Nehemiah chapter 2, and let's begin reading there. We looked at these last week under passion, but I want us to look at it uh, this morning under planning. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house which I will go. And the king granted them to me, because the good hand of my God was on me. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river, and gave them the king's letters. 
Now the king had sent me officers of the army and horsemen. And when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. We've talked about prayer. We've talked about passion. I want to give you this morning eight principles of planning. And no matter what you're involved in, if you're trying to plan for your retirement, if you're planning for your family, if you're planning for your kid's college education, if you're planning for what you're going to do as a goal with your life, if you're planning for your Sunday school apartment, for your ministry, whatever it is, you've got to follow these eight principles. And they're all found in the book of Nehemiah. Number one, godly leaders give God time to change hearts. Godly leaders give God time to change hearts. Nehemiah prayed for four months. He did not rush into the king's presence and say, oh, you don't know, I just found out about something. The city's in a mess. I got to go. I got to leave. Send my stuff. I'm out of here. Nor did he sit down and hand out copies of Norman Vincent Peale's How to Win Friends and Influence People. Nor did he read Swim with the Sharks. He didn't manage, he didn't negotiate, he didn't try to orchestrate behind the scenes. He prayed and he gave God time to change hearts. You want to know how to change people? Pray for them. You'll either change them or you'll change yourself. When you pray, God either does a work in their heart or God does a work in your heart. In fact, the first place he does a work is in your heart. God begins to change you. He'll change your attitude about a situation. He'll change your attitude about that person. He'll begin to work inside of you. A godly leader gives God time to change people's hearts. I remember when uh, Joe and I were on staff at Roswell Street and I wanted to do uh, a Wednesday night youth service because I had done it in every church I'd been in and, and I really wanted to do it. And our pastor just said, absolutely no. And I thought it was a great idea. He didn't. And so I did every creative thing under the sun trying to get people. Of course, you know, we had a sum total. We had 400 kids on Sunday morning, and we'd have 20 kids on Wednesday night. And I tried to convince him we could have more kids, but he didn't want to hear it. So I quit talking to him about it. I started praying. I said, now, Lord, in your time and in your way, you're going to work this out. I had two conversations with him about it. The second conversation was two years after the first one. And when I brought it up, he said, well, let's try it. It wasn't because I presented a five-page paper on the pros and cons of doing it. It wasn't because I'd arm-twisted him. It wasn't because I'd badgered him to the point where he just wanted me to shut up about it. I just prayed. By the way, you get a lot more done by praying than you do talking because God works behind the scenes. And God works to change hearts. Number two, principle number two. Godly leaders learn how to think things through. You see, leaders learn how to move ahead in spite of their fears. And if you're going to learn how to think things through, let me tell you what you have to do. You have to make time for think time. You have to set aside some time in your day when you turn the television off and turn the music off and turn off all the distractions. You don't even listen to sermons on tape. You don't read any books. You just think. 
You clear your head of everybody else's ideas and you sit down alone with God and you ask God to begin to orchestrate in your mind what He wants to do. As you study the Scripture, as you prayed, you begin to say, Now, Lord, what is it that I need to do? Now, I know this doesn't sound very productive, but there are times when I sit in my study and I just go, Hmm. And somewhere down the road, all of a sudden, something begins to hit me, and I begin to get and ideas, and things begin to come together. And you see, I wasn't planning on doing this message, but as I began to think, I saw that there's more in this passage than passion. There's planning in this passage. There's a lot of other things that we could cover, but that's what I found this week, just thinking. Just trying to listen and see what God has to say. You see, the reason we don't think is because we're too busy to think. And most of the people you know don't think. You know, the big saying now is people get a brain cramp, you know. I think all of America has a brain cramp. I know most of the people I meet on the road driving have brain cramps. Either that or they are clinically dead because they're obviously not thinking. I, I had this lady behind me the other day. I wish I had a video camera in the back of my car. And she's, a, she's driving down the road. And she's looking up and singing. I'm going, you know, if I put on the brakes... I got this broad that's singing some song, probably out of tune, who's going to rear end my car and go, I'm sorry, I didn't see you put on the brake lights. That's because you were gaga in, the, in your car. You should have been thinking about what you were doing. We're trying to teach our daughter how to drive. God forbid in a few months my daughter gets her driver's license. <laughs> Every time I get in the car with her, I go, think, 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 think. You know why? Because if you don't, insurance goes up. Up, 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 up. Leaders learn how to think through things. Proverbs 13, 16. Every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool displays folly. Proverbs 14, 8. The wisdom of the prudent is to understand his way, but the folly of fools is deceit. The thinker will ask three questions. Number one, where am I now? Where am I right now? What's going on in my life right now? Number two, where do I want to be? What do I want God do, to do with my life? I don't want to just exist and go through the motions. I want to accomplish something with the life and the energy and the gifts and the abilities that God's given me. Number three, how will I get there? How will I get there? It's not going to happen by osmosis. <laughs> now, you know the end of this quote, so you fill it out for me. Failing to plan is planning to fail. If you don't think things through, you will fail at almost everything you endeavor to do. Number three, godly leaders... Sometimes plodding along in life and just trying to get from point A to point B seems a little difficult, but you prepare for the opportunities because opportunities don't come by accident. Opportunities are usually the result of a lot of sweat and tears and prayer. 
And the reason we miss our opportunities is because we're not prayed up, we don't have a passion, and the opportunities blow by us, and we look around and everybody say, well, how come he got a chance to do that? Because he was prayed up, because he had a passion, and because he was prepared. And God will trust people with great opportunities who are prayed up, who have a passion, and who are prepared. God's not going to trust you with a great opportunity if you're not ready for it. He's not going to waste his blessings on you if you're not in a prayed-up environment where you're ready to see what God wants to do. You, you read history, and I, I remember the story of Douglas MacArthur when he was uh, driven off to the Philippines. You remember what he said when he left? I shall return. You know, I've read everything I can read about that particular thing, and, and I've got a great biography on MacArthur, but, I, you know, I've noticed something. He did not wait for the emperor of Japan to invite him to come back. The minute he walked off of that island, he was consumed with one thing. What do I need to go back and reclaim those islands? And there was a plan, a methodical effort on his part to go from one island to another, how to divide and conquer, to capture, to move, and to take over those islands that he had lost. Why? Because he prepared for the opportunity. The opportunity wasn't at the moment he left. It was way down the road, but he was ready when the opportunity came. Godly leaders prepare for opportunities. Jesus came in the fullness of time. He was prepared for the opportunity to come and show to man that God's salvation was provided through Jesus Christ. Number four, godly leaders set goals. Verse five, he says, send me to Judah that I may rebuild it. Now when you set goals, you ask yourself three questions. What do I want to be? What does God want me to do? And what do I need to accomplish God's will? Send me to Judah that I may rebuild it. Now remember, he talked about the house of his father's. And he talked about the, the, the city where the tombs of his fathers were. Nehemiah wasn't trying to go to Jerusalem just to have a family reunion. I heard this guy the other day. He said, you know, I went with my friend to a family reunion. He said, we went to his Meemaw's house. He says, his Meemaw lives way back in the woods. He said, in fact, she lives so far back in the woods, the Presbyterians handle snakes. He said, uh, he said, he's got a cousin. He said, he's a little strange. He said, he's got a bumper sticker on his truck. It says, guns don't kill people. I do. <laughs> he said, I looked around at his family, and he said, I wanted to call Unsolved Mysteries and say, I found everybody. Nehemiah wasn't going over to have some family reunion and eat barbecue in the back of a pickup truck. He had one goal. I want to go to Judah for one reason. I want to rebuild it. I want to rebuild walls. I don't care what else is going on. I've got a goal in mind. Now, there are two mistakes in goal setting. One is that you would set your goals too low. If you reach every goal you set, you probably haven't set your goals high enough that you would set your goals too low. Secondly, that you would try to reach it too quickly, which is a sign you haven't done your homework and you haven't planned because anything worth doing takes time. That you would set your goals too low 
or that you would try to reach it too quickly. Number five, godly leaders set deadlines. Now, you know what a goal is, don't you? A goal is a dream with a deadline. Now, notice what he said in verse 6. I gave him a definite time. Oh, I tell you what, if there is a sin among God's people, it is the sin of procrastination. I'll do it tomorrow. And one day, tomorrow doesn't come. Now, for those of you, do, do all of you, first of all, do all of you understand that unless Jesus comes back, you're going to die? No, seriously, do you understand? Unless Jesus comes back, you're going to die. Okay, can I encourage you to do something? Can I encourage you this year to set a deadline to have a will and an executor of your estate and somebody to take care of your personal affairs and somebody to have power of attorney in your life? And can I encourage you to decide what you want to do about a living will? You know why? I got one little card typed out by my dad on the day he went to the hospital. It says he wants me to have power of attorney and be the executor of his estate. The only problem is he was going to do it, and he never did it, and he never got out of the hospital to do it. And now I've got to pay a lawyer hundreds of dollars to do what my dad should have done before he died. He didn't go in the hospital for him to die. By the way, you are going to die. And if you don't have your affairs in order, shame on you. If you don't have a will... And if you don't have your estate in order, now you can give it all to Uncle Sam if you want to. This is free advice, okay? You can give it all to Uncle Sam and inheritance taxes and everything if you want to. If you don't have your estate in order where you can leave something to the kingdom of God and you can keep your kids from fighting about it, shame on you. Because God has given you a mind and ability and we have too many resources around us to go into life or death unprepared. Some of you have small children. If something were to happen to you, you have no idea who would raise those kids. You have no plans. You're thinking, well, my mom and dad will raise them. Maybe, maybe not. What if they're too old to raise them effectively? You see, you've got to set a deadline. You can't say, well, one day I'm going to do that. You ought to go this week and get an appointment and do something about it. You ought to sit down and you ought to put it in a place where you can find it because you need a deadline. And I'll just give you an example. And this will encourage your prayer life, too. When Joe and Marty had Kenna, they asked us to be the godparents. And so I prayed real hard that nothing would ever happen to Joe and Marty. <laughs> I mean, it's all written out. You know, I, I said, God, <laughs> you know our needs. <laughs> and you know their needs. <laughs> and so you let them live and prosper. <laughs> Now, that doesn't have anything to do with Nehemiah, but it has to do with you. If you care anything about leading and influencing the people that you love, make the right provisions. Do the right thing for them. You know what my mom and dad did? They sat down 10 years ago and planned their funeral. And I've talked to people and they go, oh... I, I don't want to go down there at funeral home picking out a casket. I've never been in a room with casket. Well, you better, you're going to be in one one day. And I tell you, it's a whole lot better to pre-plan it 
than it is in the distress of the moment of death to go and try to figure out what mom or dad or brother or sister would have wanted. Plan it. I know this is gruesome. I know this is not peppy to talk about. But set a deadline because you are facing a deadline. When I walked in, in both my mom's funeral and my dad's funeral, I said, okay, what do we need to do? They said, nothing. They've paid for it. It's all prepared. It's all been paid for. You don't have to do anything. Just tell us who's going to be in charge of services. My dad had already figured that out. He already had a list of what songs he wanted. I didn't have to ask. He had already written out everything he wanted in his obituary. You know what? That was an easy morning for me, which could have been very, very difficult for me. Because my dad loved me enough to prepare and to keep me from facing that burden when he died. I'm going to tell you something, folks. Godly leaders set deadlines. doesn't matter whether it's about dying or living. Set a deadline. Say, well, I want to retire one day. Are you ready? You know that the average American has so little money and savings and investments that they can't afford to retire? And by the way, if you think the Social Security system is going to be here to help you in 2030, i got some land in Brazil I'd like to sell you. I mean, the government's not going to keep bailing you out, folks, and if you don't plan, you're going to live the last years of your life in poverty when you could have taken care of yourself. You know what's happening to the American culture and even to Christians? We spend every penny we make living like there's no day of reckoning and there's no tomorrow. Godly leaders set deadlines. Now, is everybody depressed now? <laughs> Okay, let's move on. Number six. <laughs> Godly leaders realize that the opinions of others will not always agree with their vision. Now, in verse 7, Nehemiah asked for the necessary paperwork and the passports. Why? Because he anticipated and expected opposition. Listen, if you are moving forward, you are going to cause problems for those who are content with the status quo. It's just going to happen. If you're making waves, guess what? Those who like calm waters will not like what you're doing. But a boat is not made to sit in a harbor. A boat is made to go out into the ocean. And when a boat is moving, it's making a wave. And it's creating a wake. And its effects are far-reaching. If you are moving forward in your life, then you've got to realize that you're going to be cutting through some water that people may not want disturbed. You know why most churches don't grow? They don't want to. They don't want to grow. They don't want to reach new people. You know, their baptistry is full of old furniture and old vacation Bible school stuff. They don't want to baptize. You know why there's water in that baptistry every Sunday? Because we expect God to save people every week. If you don't expect it, let's just cover it up. Well, in fact, we'll make a jacuzzi out of it. Kind of a good size for one anyway. But <laughs> we'll have a spa in the church. <laughs> You've got to realize, verse 10, these people, uh, Samballot and Tobiah, were very displeased and deeply disturbed. Hey, it should not surprise you if you're on a course to do what God wants you to do, the people who want to live on the level of mediocrity are going to do everything they can to stop you because you are in a, a direct affront to their laziness and apathy. 
They just soon just sit soaking sour. You know, melons just after they get ripe, you know what they do? They rot. And a lot of people are rotting because they're not taking the preparations to ripen their lives up with God and to bear the kind of fruit that God wants them to bear. And so they're just kind of going along, just kind of floating through life, never really making a difference. You know, I never really did anything, and I did it quite well. You see, you must expect that you're going to have spiritual opposition from Satan and the forces in the heavenly places. But you can also have physical opposition. And the leader expects it and anticipates it. Number seven, godly leaders calculate the cost. Verse eight tells us that he knows what he needed. He needed timber for the walls, for the gates, for his house. He knew who he needed to go to. He know, knew who he needed to contact. He knew where he needed to go. You calculate the cost. Whatever you want to do, make sure you've figured out what it's going to cost you. You say, well, I, I want to start my own business. Then make sure you know what the costs are. I want to grow my Sunday school class. Then make sure you know that you've got to raise the level of commitment of the Sunday school class that you've got now. Well, I, I, I want to see the church grow. Then there's a cost in the church growing. By the way, there are only two kinds of pain. Growing pain and dying pain. We either have the pain of growth or we have the pain of dying. But if you and I are going to pay the price, then we have to calculate it and think it through because there is a cost involved to being a good leader. If you're going to be the kind of husband you're supposed to be, if you're going to be the kind of father you're supposed to be in your home, there's a cost involved with that. You may have to give up some things to do the best things. You may have to give up good things to do better things and better things to do the best things. There are priorities that you have to make. There are choices that you have to make. Number eight, godly leaders recognize the obstacles that must be overcome. Now look at verse 11, if you would. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days, and I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem, and there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. Verse 17. Then I said to them, You see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. So let's go out in the garden, dig a hole, sit on a rock, and eat worms and have a pity party. That is what it says, isn't it? Oh, you see how desolate this situation is. All this rubble, the gates are burned, the walls are down. This place is a disaster area. You can't believe it. it's so bad if you read all the verses. It's so bad I have to walk, get off my, my donkey and walk because we can't make the way through. It is such a, a pile of rubbish and a heap of ashes and burned up wood and stones. It is so depressing I think I'll just go back and be a cupbearer. Is that what he said? No. He also didn't say, hey, you people leave me alone. I'll do this by myself. Look at what he said. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. Nehemiah understood that obstacles are opportunities for people to come together, that problems are possibilities in the eyes of God. 
that as Don Miller says, God takes the impossible and puts an H in front of it and makes it a him possible. But you have to recognize that obstacles are there. You can't pretend they're not there. They will be there. But your God is bigger than your obstacle. Your power available to you through the Holy Spirit is bigger than your problem. Whatever your need, His grace is greater than that. You see, it's not just about getting worked up. It's getting worked up about the right things and then having a plan. It's not just about having a passion. It's having a plan. There are a lot of people that are passionate that never get anything done. But you have to be passionate, and then you have to have a plan to fulfill that passion. I heard the story of uh, Newt Rockney when he was coaching Notre Dame, and uh, they were undefeated and ranked number one. They were going into a ball game against a team that was no competition. I mean, it was just... It was a pushover. You know, it was one of those games where even the water boy was going to get to dress out and play. It is, this, this team was nobody. It was the last game of the season. Nothing mattered. At halftime, Notre Dame was down 26 to nothing. Newt Rockney went into the locker room and gave one of those passionate coaches' speeches. He said, you boys are taking this other team lightly and you're not taking this game seriously. we got a national championship on the line. You are an embarrassment to this university and you are an embarrassment to your family. Now, if you don't change something about the way you're playing this game, you're going to embarrass the name of this school and everything about us. And I mean, he worked up and he was going around to all the players and he was walking around the room and he was talking to them and he was motivating them and his nostrils were flaring and sweat was rolling down his face and he was just getting them all going and he was moving around and, and flailing his arms everywhere and he was going after it. He said, now let's get up and go out that door and beat that team. And they got up and they went out the door. The only problem is Newt Rockney pointed to the wrong door and they ran straight into the Olympic-sized swimming pool. And the entire team came out at halftime dripping wet. I'm going to tell you something. You can have as much passion about something as you want to have, but if you don't have a plan, you're just going to be a big drip. You can be motivated, but if you go through the wrong door, you're not going to be ready for the second half of your life. I am at what writers would call halftime in my life and a little beyond it. About the time a man reaches the age of 40, he's in about halftime. Normal life expectancy being what it is. You see, I can't go back and replay the first half of my life. I can't go back to high school and redo some stupid decisions I made there. I don't want to go back to high school. I don't want to ask a girl out for a date the first time again. I worry about these people say, I wish I was back in high school. Why? I mean, you want to go out on your first date and have a zit the size of a zoo <laughs> on your forehead? I mean, this is what people are living for. Want to go back the first time and tell your dad you just wrecked his car? <laughs> See, I can't go back and redo the choices I made or the decisions I made, but in the last few years I've had to evaluate not so much where I've been, but where do I want to go? 
And you see, what my prayer and my passion has done is it has helped me develop a plan for where I want to go and what I want to be. I can tell you some things I don't want to be. I don't want to be the pastor of the largest church in the Southern Baptist Convention. I don't want to be the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. I don't want to be the president of the Georgia Baptist Convention. I don't want to be on most of the things I'm on. <laughs> I'm not interested in getting my name in brochures. I'm not interested in being on the front cover of the Christian Index. I'm not interested in being the kind of pastor that says to his staff, if you don't baptize two people a week, no matter what you've got to do by hook or crook, guilt or trip or whatever you've got to do, then you don't have a job here. I'm not interested in a performance-based ministry. I've got friends that are. Everything to them is numbers. That doesn't drive me. I mean, if numbers is the guideline for success, Jesus was a failure. Because he lost them all at the cross. Numbers don't drive me. People drive me. Ministry drives me. But, you know, I'm, I'm not interested in performance. I'm interested in a purpose. And whatever time God gives me until the end of my life, I want to have lived it targeted and focused with a sense of purpose. Somebody asked me how much longer I thought I'd be in Albany. And I said, if I stayed in Albany until I was retirement age, I have enough to do to keep me busy and focused in this church for the rest of my ministry. I don't have to go anywhere else to get my kicks. I don't have to go anywhere else to feed my ego. I don't have to go anywhere else to make myself feel good about myself. You see, my success is not in the eyes of the denomination or in the eyes of my peers. My success is in the eyes of my Father. And if my Heavenly Father is pleased to make my life known or unknown, that's His business. You see, when you've got that kind of prayer and you've got that kind of passion and you have that kind of purpose, then you start planning your life to maximize where God's got you. Most of us spend our time wishing we were somewhere else, and God wants us to grow where we've been planted. Let me ask you. You planning? Let's say God gives you another year. Let's say he gives you five more. Let's say you've got ten more. Maybe you've got 40 more years. Maybe you've got 50 more years. Are you going to be any closer to the fulfillment of what God put you on this earth for a year from now than you are today? If you're not, then I can tell you something about your life. You're not praying like you should. You're not asking God to give you the passion that you should ask Him to give you. And you don't have any plan for your life. You will live and you will die and you will never make a difference. And God put you here to make a difference. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Kett. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.